Welcome to This Never Happened, the podcast. Every episode, I, Tim Stevens, present to the board of what exists some flotsam of entertainment for the elimination from the timeline. Be it album, TV show, movie, or book, I will not hesitate to fight for a better pop culture landscape. I will not stop until the truly terrible and the awfully benign are referred to with the simple sentence, This Never Happened. Aiding and abetting my quest is the engineer, Skip Serpico, and of course, all of you. Thanks for coming. Enjoy the trial. you have something interesting for us. I certainly hope the board will find that to be true. Today I bring forth the item Iron John, a 1990 critical analysis of the grim fairy tale of the same name. Well, this seems to be full of promise, so uh, uh, proceed. Thank you. As noted earlier, the book was published in 1990, and in its pages author Robert Bly set out to make the argument that the grim fairy tale had special significance to the so-called modern man. In the story, the discovery of a dangerous wild man with skin as strong as steel leads to his capture and his imprisonment within the walls of the kingdom. While under lock and key, this man eventually meets and interacts with the prince, which leads to a mentor-mentee relationship. The book is credited with being an early contributor to, if not the father, of the mythopoetic men's movement. The mythopoetic movement is a subdivision of the larger men's movement, but shares some common features, including um, a fear of a progressive society that strips men of something, some part of their essence, that men are more victimized by society than anyone acknowledges, and things of this nature. The mythopoetic movement in particular posits the idea that modernity and second-wave feminism had forced men to lose some of their inherent masculinity and become, in essence, feminized. Ironically steeped in the language of union psychology, that language that is decried as many other men's movement uh, individuals as being too feminine in and of itself, the mythopoetics focused on a few specific areas where men were undercut. According to Wikipedia, these were that modern society, with its emphasis on rationality, had somehow interfered with men's ability to achieve so-called deep masculinity by blunting the sense of emotional intimacy and spiritual collectivism that men once had in some earlier society. This was visible in the fact that men were now competitors in the workplace, not collaborators as they had once been. The fact that men increasingly spent more time at home in the company of women as opposed to out in the company of other men and that during those times they were becoming increasingly feminine because of this lack of non-competitive male interaction. <clears throat> the feminist movement raising the volume on the voices of women made the male voice blunted and overwhelmed in some way. Men were increasingly separated from their fathers too soon, symbolically if not literally, and this harmed masculine development. 
men were cowed by accusations of sexism when they should be acknowledging and celebrating the difference between the sexes. And lastly, modern society demanded that men tamp down their emotions and by cutting them off from expressing them, created a situation in which men were unable to realize that deep masculinity. I've chosen to bring this before the board today because strains of the mythopoetic movement can be seen all over the internet in nearly every men's rights organization that finds its way onto message boards or questions every article about everything from paternity to divorce to rape. Well, the people on the internet and elsewhere who use some of the trappings of it rarely reference the mythopoetic movement and were probably rather unaware that they're even taking place or taking part in the movement. The tracks they laid down in books like Iron John, for instance, continue to inform the debate today. To make that clear, I just want to go over the manners in which it allowed this kind of men's right movement to rise, if you will. First, Iron John traffics in anti-intellectualism. In the United States, it's almost never hard to sell anything on the basis of it being too smart, and Iron John indulges in this particular fetish that Americans have for a lack of thought by prescribing a sort of return to nature aesthetic in which men aren't supposed to think about their daily lives, aren't supposed to be rational about them, but are supposed to rely on instinct and pure emotion instead. This anti-intellectualism finds a complementary cousin and a bolster in the group's knee-jerk anti-modernity. Uh, they reject the modern trappings of society uh, in the name of a mythic time of deep masculinity some previous society once had. There's no evidence to suggest this ever really existed. Um, it is as fictional as the story of Iron John written by the Grimm brothers. And yet it is the basis for the philosophy. It's very similar to the way many Americans look back on the 1950s as a golden era while ignoring things like racism, um, the inability of people with same-sex attraction to be safely out of the closet, uh, the beginning trappings of white flight, and so on. Also problematic is the group's inherent apolitical opinions. While there is nothing specifically in the mythos of mytho the mythopoetic movement that prescribed that women were bad or wrong, by promoting isolationism and essentialism and refusing to take on issues of feminism, rape, and so on, the group fostered an environment that was easily twisted to give rise to those not just celebrating men, but denigrating women, promoting their oppression, and so on. And their refusal at any point to break with that tradition, to even say two words in praise of modern women, um, allowed the group to be a haven for people who would dress up their sexism as a return to deep masculinity. And finally, 
although it doesn't really relate to the political aspects of Iron John, it must be stated. Robert Bly's book is awkwardly written and overreaching. He's posited an entire movement on one fairy tale, essentially. And make no mistake about it, the Grimm Brothers story is a fairy tale. It's not a recreation of a true event in history. It's a lot to hang anything on, never mind an entire movement that argues for a more natural state of man. So for these reasons, I want to suggest to the board now that Iron John, excuse me, that Iron John never happened. That is a, that is a very, very compelling case that you make. Uh, you bring up a lot of interesting points. Um, you know, I, I can't see a, a reason to keep it around. It's certainly got a lot of strikes against it, so, uh, you know, it, it never happened. Wow, I, I thank you. I, I expected further questions. I'm relieved that that wasn't the case. Um, excellent. I, I won't push my luck. Thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you guys soon. Oh, terrific. I look forward to it as well, and uh, have a great week. You too, sir. selected story from the archives concerns the comic Connor Hawk Dragon's Blood. Beginning in late 2006, the six-issue Connor Hawk Dragon's Blood limited series marked the return of writer-creator Chuck Dixon to the character and featured art from Derek Donovan. Connor Hawk was created in 1994 and came to prominence during an era in which DC Comics was undergoing significant tremors, some designed to be temporary like the death of Superman and the reign of Superman storylines, which saw four different people step forward to possibly assume the mantle of the slain Man of Steel. Batman Nightfall, which saw Bruce Wayne's back shattered and a younger, more violent Batman arise in his place. Or the contest, which saw Wonder Woman also bested in physical combat and replaced. Others were less clear. Kyle Rayner's assumption of the Green Lantern mantle following Hal Jordan's PTSD-induced violent assault on the Guardians and Oa, for instance. Hawk fell into the latter category, taking over for Green Arrow Oliver Queen, who also happened to be Hawk's absentee father, after Queen was killed in an eco-terrorist incident. However, by 2006, even those in question had largely been rolled back into place. Hal Jordan was back, and the best, just the greatest Green Lantern ever, and Kyle was fighting for panel time and relevance. Hawk fared even worse in comparison in the wake of Oliver Queen's 2001 resurrection, and by, 20, uh, by 2006, he seemed almost non-existent. All of which is to say that, on the surface, this limited series was a very exciting development, Hawk's creator returning to him when the character seemed most in need of a reason to exist. As it is already known, the board are big fans of Connor Hawk and thought that this was a time for celebration. However, times had changed, and one of the ways they had changed was that comics were becoming increasingly more comfortable with depicting and discussing same-sex intimate relationships. And by increasingly, we mean it all, just even the smallest amount. 
Chuck Dixon, however, was not changing his position on such matters. This might have been neither here nor there except Connor, despite having the occasional opposite-sex romantic dalliance, had long been talked about as perhaps being gay or bi, or at the very least not firmly entrenched on the extreme heterosexual side of sexuality's continuum. So, in the pages of Dragon's Blood, Connor had sex with a human woman. End of story. Now, to link Connor having sex with Chuck Dixon's attitude towards homosexuality is admittedly speculation. And even if it were true in and of itself, it would not be cause for the board to eliminate this limited series. Dixon had long insisted on Hawk's heterosexuality, and so while it might be disappointing to have some, uh, to some to have that confirmed in the pages of a limited series, it's not entirely cause for outrage. The problem comes from who Connor has sex with. It's a woman named Shadow. First, Shadow is a murderous assassin, which certainly is not who Hawk, the virtuous patient Buddhist, would usually see as a good fit for a romantic partner. His father was a skirt-chasing lead-with-his-heart guy, and so it's not entirely shocking that he might chase after somebody who is perhaps not the most moral choice. But for Hawk, it was a little less understandable. However, we all do some questionable things when it comes to physical attraction sometimes, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Except for there's the matter that Shadow raped Oliver Queen. I want to state that again so everybody really hears it. Shadow raped Connor Hawk's father years earlier. Queen, nearly unconscious from physical strain and painkillers, was unable to give his consent and was unaware of what Shadow was doing. It was not violent, perhaps, but it was unquestionably rape. Now, to be clear, it is not necessarily clear if in story Hawk has any idea that, he, that she did this. But Dixon surely did. Which means the writer made the choice to have Hawk sleep with the woman who victimized his dad. Dixon, this writer who felt the same-sex love was too complicated to have in comics, instead thought themes of parental abandonment, because of course Queen had no relationship with Connor until Connor was in his teens, and didn't even acknowledge he was his father until several years later, rape, as noted above, and a child sleeping with his father's rapist, again as noted above, could be easily grasped by his hypothetical 9-10 to 10 year old audience. We all know that comic audiences skew older, but according to Dixon, this is who we should be writing for. She loves her, and they are committed to one another is a concept too far to be depicted in superhero comics, but once this assassin drugged and had forced sexual intercourse with this guy's dad, and now he's having sex with her as well, years later, with no prior relationship, oh, and the guy's dad was basically a deadbeat to the kid until he was an adult, is just the right temperature of porridge for all the Goldilocks cracking comic spines everywhere, apparently. Now think back to the start of this, when we discussed Dixon possibly being motivated to assert Hawk's heterosexuality as a shield against some other writer coming by at some point, and perhaps labeling Connor as something besides straight. And think on that, and ask yourself, if that was a factor, and he chose to do it this way, what does that say? 
Now again, it's speculation, but just ponder that for a moment. So, after a very brief discussion, the board determined that Connor Hawk Dragon's Blood never happened because it was dumb, gross, and shows an absolutely galling backwards attitude towards sexualities that were not strictly hetero. Thanks again. Show notes with links to information pertinent to this podcast are available at timstevensisungage.com. That's T-I-M-S-T-E-V-E-N-S-I-S-U-N-G-A-J-J-E, all as one word, dot com. Please also feel free to leave comments on this or other episodes there, or to make suggestions about what other pieces of pop culture you think are unworthy of existence. If you prefer to offer your comments and suggestions by email, you can send those missives to thisneverhappenedpod at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, mention it to everyone you know. Suggest they listen. Suggest it strongly. Suggest it in a way that makes it clear that this is more than just a suggestion. <laughs>